The following program contains subject matter that may be disturbing to some audiences. Listener's discretion is advised. Today, kids, we bring you a true story of a child murderer in 1961, as well as a haunting story about the little bastard. Weird news story brings us a story about a potato? Those stories and more, this is episode 26, The Stranger with Candy, and it starts now. You're listening to The Mr. Cemetery Show, the podcast that's dedicated to the dark corners of the world. From weird news to historical oddities and the unexplained mysteries, here's your host, Mr. Cemetery. Hello and welcome back to the show, you sick, twisted freaks. Thanks for joining us today. This is The Mr. Cemetery Show. I am Mr. Cemetery. And I'm Krista. And we appreciate you joining us. If you're new to the show, this is the podcast that's dedicated to all things weird, strange, haunted, and creepy. But it's mixed with enough wackiness that you don't have to sleep with your little nightlight on. We put out new episodes every Friday, so if you haven't yet, please subscribe to the show so you don't miss any future episodes. I'd also like to remind everyone in Connecticut, a pickle must be able to bounce. Yes, there was a law that puts Connecticut farmers in quite a pickle. In 1948, two men were arrested for selling pickles that were unfit for human consumption. Discussing ways to check for a good pickle, officials declare that a pickle is legitimate only if it bounces. The pickles in question, they did not bounce. So the two men were arrested and fined, and their pickles were destroyed. Oh. Yeah, sad. Start checking to see if my pickles bounce. <laughs> <laughs> not a pickle, it didn't bounce. <laughs> Sweet gherkin. (laughs) Did you know that on February 11th in 1809, Robert Fulton patented the steamboat? Steamboat Willie. Steamboat Willie. He did not patent Steamboat Willie. No. (laughs) Cool if he did. In 1847, American inventor Thomas Edison was born in Milan, Ohio. I did not know that. And in 1994, we lost Sorrel Brook. He was an American actor who performed on stage, screen, and television. He acted in more than 100 plays, 150 television shows, and he is best known for his role as corrupt politician Jefferson Davis, Boss Hogg, in the television show The Dukes of Hazard. I like that show. Yeah. I like Boss Hogg. Yeah. He played that role good. He really did. Made a good Boss Hogg. Yeah. Yeah. Loved to hate him. <laughs> yeah. He always made me laugh. Yeah. He was pretty funny. If you have a personal haunted, spooky, or just plain weird story you would like to share with us, send it to us at the Mr. Cemetery Show at gmail.com. There's a link in the show notes, so send us your story today, and maybe your story will be on the next episode. It's time for some weird news. Frozen potatoes cause highway to close for four hours. Of all things one would consider to stop traffic on a highway, frozen potatoes were the last thing that comes to mind. Several drivers on Interstate 94 in Minnesota had to stop abruptly after a crash resulted in a huge load of frozen potatoes being dumped on the road. Although the potatoes were fresh, they started freezing to the road due to the low temperatures in the area. Vehicles on the road had to stop as potatoes didn't roll to the side of the road but instead stuck to the middle of the road after being frozen. All lanes of the highway were reopened a few hours after the cleanup, and no one was injured from the frozen spuds. That would make for a bumpy ride. What sucks so bad? Fuck, fuck, fuck. Frozen potatoes. You would have to scream, boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew. Right. As you were doing it. The Mr. Cemetery Show will return after these messages. 
you into spine-tingling crime stories? Then Krista McKibben's Hatchet Man book is for you. It's a chilling tale set in the 1800s about one of America's earliest serial killers, whose disturbing crimes occurred in both Ohio and Maryland. The book also includes a full trial and confession as told by the Baltimore Sun. Hatchet Man by Krista McKibben is available on paperback and Kindle, only at Amazon.com. Now, back to the Mr. Cemetery Show. And we're back. Most of us have a preconceived notion of what a killer looks like. As kids, we're taught to watch out for sinister, untidy men wanting to snatch us from the playground. We hear stories about like Charles Manson and John Wayne Gacy and assume that a person's look is a clue into their psyche. But the truth is, a killer can be anyone. They can sometimes be a child themselves, like 15-year-old Cheryl Joles, who lured children with candy in Buffalo, New York in the early 1960s. Mmm, stranger candy. It's the best. But why would a young girl commit such horrendous crimes? And more importantly, why did she get away with it? It's June 22nd, 1961 in Buffalo, New York, and five-year-old Richie Edgington is playing hide-and-seek with his friends. He's off on his own looking for a place to hide when he is approached by a young woman. He thinks she looks like someone old enough to be his mother, but she's actually only 15. Her name is Cheryl Joles, and she tells the young boy that she's a family friend who's come to take him away. When he hesitates and backs away from her, she grabs him by the wrist. Richie is confused, but he does as he's told. She takes him by the hand and leads him towards the zoo. On the way there, she collects a piece of rope and a plastic bag from the ground. They walk through the zoo and eventually make it their way through Delaware Park and onto an old railroad track. She leads the young boy onto the small body of water. She bends down and whispers, This is where I'm going to drown you, and you will never see your mother and father again. Then for an unknown reason, she changes her mind. She gives the boy a piece of candy and tells him they're going to play cowboys and Indians. She then strips him down to his underwear, wraps the plastic bag over his head, gags him with a piece of cloth, and ties him to the railroad tracks. She walks away, leaving Richie alone and terrified. The boy manages to untie himself and runs for help. When he tells the police his ordeal, they realize the circumstances of his abduction and identical to what occurred to a five-year-old girl named Susan Benedict only a couple months before. Susan's abduction had occurred not far from where the boy was taken, and like Richie, she had been found abandoned and tied to the same railroad tracks. Richie and Susan both describe Cheryl as being much older than she actually is, so she's able to escape capture as the police look for a woman in her late 20s to mid-30s. Investigating deeper into Cheryl Joel's past offers some clues to what could have led her to such despicable acts. Cheryl didn't grow up with a stable family, and she has spent much of her childhood in and out of a mental asylum and foster homes. She was the subject of barbaric treatments that included shock therapy. At the age of 12, she was suspected to have set a fire to a group home that she was living in. While staying with her aunt, Cheryl had tied up one of her cousins and locked him in a room, an event that would foreshadow her future kidnappings. But the crime that she committed the day after Richie Edgington was found, tied to the railroad tracks, would turn from a disturbed kidnapper into a cold-blooded killer. At 3.30 p.m. on Friday, June 23rd, three-year-old Andrew Ashley says goodbye to his parents as he leaves his apartment building to go out and visit a neighbor friend who lives nearby. Several hours pass, Andrew doesn't return, so his parents make their way to the house, only to find out the neighbors aren't home. They search all evening for the little boy and eventually contact the police when they are unable to find him. They interview a neighbor named Edward Earn, who states that he witnessed Andrew being led by the hand of a strange woman in her mid-30s. She was leading him to the Buffalo Zoo, which is just across the street from Andrew's home and is in the same place Richie Edgington had been forced to walk through. The police quickly connect the dots in a large-scale search involving 100 policemen and the FBI is initiated, but turns up nothing on the first day. 
Because of the park's close proximity to a mental hospital, authorities initially thought the kidnapper could have been an escaped mental patient. Remembering how Richie Edgerton had said that the woman that took him threatened to drown him, the police started searching lakes, ponds near Delaware Park on Saturday morning. That same day, Cheryl attempts to abduct two other children by offering them candy, but is caught by the parents and taken into police custody. The police interrogate her, but eventually let her go because they were under false impressions that the suspect that they were looking for was a much older woman. The next morning, Cheryl calls Andrew's mother and asks her to tell the police to call off the investigation. She says, Mrs. Ashley, your son's Andrew's okay. If you call the police, then I promise I'll let him go. The FBI are able to trace the call to a phone booth in town, and when they arrive, Cheryl is still inside speaking to Mrs. Ashley. She is taken in by the FBI and claims that she was only calling Mrs. Ashley in attempts to console her. Once again, she's released without further investigation. Wow. <laughs> that afternoon, the body of Andrew Ashley is discovering floating in Delaware Park Lake. His hands and feet were bound and has a dish rag tied around his neck. The medical examiner determined that the boy had only died an hour after being abducted. Because police are searching for a much older woman, Cheryl escaped suspicion for several days until the police received more detailed description of the suspect from Richie Edgington and are able to put together a sketch that bears a strong resemblance to the teenager. For the third time, Cheryl is brought into the police station. This time, Richie Edgington identifies Cheryl as the kidnapper and her home is searched. Police find a diary containing information about the Andrew's disappearance as well as a map of the area labeled The Way I Went Last Friday. Cheryl confesses to the kidnapping but refuses to admit that she tossed him into the lake, saying that she only tied him up and that he fell in on his own. She's indicted on August 2, 1961, but is found unfit to stand trial and admitted to Matawan State Hospital for the criminally insane in January of 1962. Two years later, it was determined that she was become stable enough to stand trial and she returned to Buffalo. Only two weeks into the trial, the judge declares a mistrial because Cheryl's hostile and unusual behavior. She's returned to the mental hospital. Five years later, she's petitioned for a release with the help of the testimony of her psychiatrist. All charges against her are dropped. She's transferred to a civil mental institution, and according to her medical records, she is released on January 29, 1971. After her release, Cheryl disappears from all records. Her current whereabouts are a mystery. Ooh, spooky. Yeah, that's freaking weird. Sad-ass story, crazy-ass yeah. story. Wow. You ever heard that one? No. That's yeah, an interesting Cops one. dropped the ball a lot on that one, too, yeah. huh? Yes, they did. <laughs> Unreal. I want to know where she is. Yeah, really? What happened to her? Huh. Right? I'm sure she probably changed her identity and... Yeah, that's you know. spooky shit. Yeah. She was 15 when this happened? She's kidnapping kids, killing them, and just <laughs> let go. No one knows where she's at. Yeah. Fucking crazy. Creepy. Well, that was my story. What do you got? I titled this story, The Curse of Little Bastard. Little Bastard! Fall! Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> James Byron Dean was an American actor. He's remembered as a cultural icon of teenage disillusionment and social estrangement, as expressed in the title of his most celebrated 1955 film, Rebel Without a Cause. Despite his notable career in acting, it was not something he really enjoyed. His true passion lied with cars and racing. James saved the money he earned from the movies he starred in and purchased a Porsche 550, a car that soon became a racing favorite across the globe because of its agility and power. 
James soon got the number 130 painted over the hood and the doors to signify that it wasn't a regular 550 Spider. To add a personal touch, he had Little Bastard painted on the rear, a nickname that was given to him by a friend. On the same day, he drove his car around Los Angeles and ran into the British actor Sir Alec Guinness outside a restaurant. James was ecstatic to show off his latest acquisition to his friend. Still, he was taken aback when superstitious Alec warned James about the car, but Dean laughed and neglected Alec's remarks. In his interview with the BBC, Alec discussed meeting James Dean and tells the host that when he saw the Porsche, he warned Dean not to get in the car. If he did, he would not be alive by the following week. In his devil-may-care attitude, Dean didn't bother with what Alec Guinness had said to him. On the 30th of September, 1955, Dean's fateful day arrived while on his way to a race in Salinas. While out on the open roads, James decided to put his new Porsche to the test. It was at the intersection of Highway 46 and 41 where James met with his destiny. He left Blackwell's Corner with Rolf Wutherick, the Porsche mechanic, and sped away, leaving his mates behind. As they approached the intersection, an unsuspecting student, Donald Turnipseed, was driving back home in his Ford Tudor. Turnipseed was gradually turning left to take the turn towards Highway 41 at the intersection. When he realized that the spider was approaching at a much faster speed than he had first anticipated, Donald hesitated and backed out from turning left. At the same time, James, who was barreling down the road in his Porsche, did not have many options to find a way around the Ford Tudor. Within a split second, the unthinkable happened. In the light aluminum spider, Dean crashed into the front driver's side of the fender of the Ford Tudor. And because of the high speed James Dean was driving, the Porsche was immediately sent flying with its hood wholly crushed. Rolf was sent flying upon impact, but James was crumpled under the car's carcass with his feet stuck between the steering wheel and foot pedal. Soon, the hospital staff arrived and removed James from the crash. James did not have a pulse and was pronounced dead when he arrived at the hospital. On the other hand, Turnipseed, driving the Ford, got away with a scratch on his nose. Eerily, the engine of the Spider remained unharmed and intact despite the horrendous impact, and the remains of the crash in the Spider were then auctioned off by the insurance company. George Barris, a leading car customizer and Dean's friend, gained control of the wrecked Spider and began to sell parts of the vehicle to other drivers. Instead of being happy to have a second chance at life, the car seemed furious. Dr. William Eschgrid, a passionate part-time racer, purchased some of those parts and used the four-cylinder engine in his Lotus 9. As some spider parts were 550 specific, Eskridge lent some of the parts he purchased from the transmission and suspension to another surgeon named Dr. Troy McHenry. Two went on to participate in the 1956 Potomac race with their cars that had the cursed spider's parts installed. At first, things seemed to be going very well, and Eskridge was pleased with the way his Lotus drove thanks to the Porsche engine he installed. But this joy soon disappeared when the Lotus suddenly lost control and crashed. Dr. Eskrid was not heavily injured and suffered minor injuries, whereas the car was totaled. However, he was not the only one that met with an accident that day. Mid-race, Rory McHenry lost control of his steering wheel and crashed into a tree. This accident proved to be fatal and claimed the life of Dr. McHenry, who wasn't as lucky as Dr. Eskrid. These incidents created a new buzz surrounding the Porsche and its curse. People said the accidents of the two doctors were caused by the curse. Both had used parts of the same 550 Spider in their cars, and that is why they were in harm's way as the curse afflicted them. George Barris went on to display the car in various car shows in the wrecked condition to earn popularity as the mystique surrounding the cursed Porsche kept growing. Many people who only touched the wrecked Spider got cuts and mysterious wounds, which only added to the rumors of the car's curse. After a while, Barris started to put some stock into the curse and promptly donated the car to California Highway Parole. 
The police were happy to take the famous car as they had plans to use it as a warning to reckless drivers. Again, the car showed that it was not pleased. The first place the CHP stored the car was in a garage that promptly burned down with only the wreckage of the old cars left standing. Chalk this up to bad luck, the CHP continued to use the car, taking it to high schools as a visual aid for the dangers of reckless driving. En route to one school, the car broke loose from the truck hauling it and crashed into another vehicle, causing a fatal accident. Damn. <laughs> Pretty crazy. There were some details here that I didn't know before. Undeterred by these bad omens, the CHP took the car to another school where the car fell on a student, breaking his hip. In total, the spider fell off the trailer that carried it three times, crushing a truck driver once. Not only did the car give law enforcement trouble, but it also made life difficult for criminals. Two thieves tried to steal the bloodstained seats and steering wheel from the wreck. Instead of getting some memorabilia out of it, all they got were injuries. Where is the James Dean Porsche today? During the car's journey back to California in 1960, the Porsche mysteriously disappeared during the trip and has not been seen since. Or has it? In 2015, Sean Riley, a 47-year-old man, provided a lead on the Dean's old car. Riley said that his father, a carpenter, had taken him to a job as a child where the client wanted a wrecked sports car to be hidden behind a wall. Father and son worked to hide the car. As the two worked, the wrecked car gave Riley a scar on his thumb that he carries to this day. Riley also claims that one of the men who wanted to hide the car was George Barris. The presence of Barris, combined with the mysterious sports car, fueled speculation that Riley had helped to hide James Dean's car. The Volo Auto Museum had Riley take a lie detector test to verify his claims. Riley passed the test. Riley's story was the first real lead to the vehicle, even though Volo had a million-dollar bounty out on the Porsche since 2005. And fun fact, James Dean is the first actor to receive a posthumous Academy Award nomination for Best Actor and remains the only actor to have had two posthumous acting nominations. Hmm. There you go. So you're saying this car is hidden in a wall somewhere? Sounds like it. <laughs> That's fucked up. Right? Maybe Cheryl I didn't realize... Joles knows where it's at. Maybe what? Maybe, maybe Cheryl Joles knows where it's at. Uh, maybe. <laughs> She's missing. The car's missing. Just saying. She's got the car. They're both behind the wall. Both behind the wall? I hadn't realized nobody's seen it in for so long. I knew it was Since missing. 1960? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't yeah. know that. I knew it was missing. I didn't realize this guy came forward recently. No, that's the first I heard of that. Yeah. It's a, I thought that was kind of neat. That's why I added it. Hmm. Well, why didn't he just go to this place and tear down the wall? Right. Why take a lie detector to this? Just say it's behind that fucking wall right there. Yeah, it's in there behind that wall. That's weird. Yeah, I'm not real sure. But then again, maybe family don't want to, or whoever owns the house. I don't even know who owns this, the house. Yeah. Family's still there, but can't just but go in and bust somebody's wall down. Well, go to the house where everybody's having freaking accidents, apparently, <laughs> and then... I bet you could do some kind of radar imaging, though. Yeah. Just to see before you knock it down, but... I don't know. You know? I don't know. Maybe they just don't want to do it. Maybe they don't want to... I it. call bullshit on this guy unless he can prove what wall is behind. Yeah. It's suspect. I'll give it that. I mean... Yeah. Interesting, though. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode of the Mr. Cemetery Show. Thanks for joining us here today. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and go ahead and leave a rate and review while you're there. You can follow us over on Instagram at The Mr. Cemetery Show. Until next time, I'm Mr. Cemetery. And I'm Krista. Thanks for listening to the show. Remember, kids, stay creepy. See ya!